Welcome back to the program. We're going to begin with a scripture reading and a prayer led by Father Lewis. Our gospel text today I'll take from the gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 1, starting verse 16. And passing along by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee and followed their Lord Jesus. With the, uh, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ, we ask you to be, uh, to be gracious in your blessing upon us, to strengthen us as your disciples, that when you call us and as you call us each and every day, we would have the faith and the fortitude to respond to your call. All this we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Lewis. So, Father Lewis, I started off mentioning the fact that we're both dressed pretty relaxed today, ah. which is very nice. Um, uh, let's just dive in with that. Dive in, right? Because uh, you, you have a little bit of, uh, is this actually considered vacation that you have, or is this more priestly ministry? You just happen to do it in a really fun place. <laughs> I would kind of combine the two. It's, I take vacation time to do what I'll be starting to do this week, which is I've been asked to serve as chaplain of um, what one of our parishioners here in the Spokane Diocese calls a Catholic family camp. And um, they just have they have uh, some some land uh, north of town uh, on a small lake, and um, and they've groomed the grounds to make it into l- like a campground, and then they just open it up one week uh, and a weekend every summer about mid July to uh, friends of theirs and who are Catholics, so we can just all hang out as Catholics and and uh, not really much of a program, but Saturday evening is our is our mass for the weekend for the Sunday obligation, and then a, a barbecue potluck. And uh, after that, it's just come as you are and do as you do. And um, but the family that hosts this always likes to have a priest on hand as chaplain to celebrate the mass um, and to um, uh, hear confessions as requ- as requested and and do things like that. Uh, otherwise, I'm in the water, cooling off and uh, eating prime rib on the grill. You know. Whenever it's served. <laughs> All done in Jesus' holy name. Of course, absolutely. I love that. There you go. There's the nice part of priestly <laughs> ministry. You know, I think that uh, how often do um, like parents or uh, how much, how often do you get sort of the, the insight or the feedback that um, families really appreciate having you there in a setting that's not at the church itself, if you know what I mean? I do, yeah. And I, I get that. I actually get that a lot where, um, <clears throat> you know, families a- appreciate... Not, not just me personally, but the priest, um, kind of inserting themselves into their into their lives or or responding to the invitation to be part of their lives, whether it's dinners at home or or watching the kids play their their baseball game or basketball game, whatever, going to their band concerts and such, and um, and it it's kind of the, the the idea is that if my for me the idea is that if if my expectation is that the people of faith will come to the church where I am, that I may serve them in that capacity. I think there's a reciprocal expectation that I think is fair that that the priest ought to insert, you know, go out of the church into their lives and to show we, this reciprocity of interest, you know, taking an interest in one another's lives. And um, and this is part of the, uh, well, Proverbs calls it, you know, iron sharpens iron. 
uh, Proverbs twenty seven seventeen, where maybe our presence together helps us just continually to be strengthened as uh, disciples of Christ, even in the just normal goings on of daily life. Are you saying that when you're there, you're sort of the moral uh, code temperature t- taker? <laughs> like, there's going to be less swearing going on if Father's here. Is well, that a- <laughs> sometimes my parishioners might tell you that there's actually more swearing going on when I'm there, usually from me. So I try to tone it down. But <laughs> oh, you're funny. Yeah. Uh, I. I would say that that is, I want to confirm that. We had a wonderful relationship with the priests at our parish. And so it, growing up, um, growing up uh, in now, and maybe, and I want to say this, it, even though we grew up in a town that was so Catholic, um, we were very involved in the life of our church. Like um, when the snow came, we plowed the church's parking lot. Um, not only were we altar boys and all these other things, but we were very, very involved in the life of the church beyond Mass. And uh, the priests that were there were very involved in our lives as well. So having them come to our house, and what that did is, is that it not only placed um, our Catholic faith at the center of our identity in terms of going to Mass and like looking at the parish as a center of life, it also brought the reality of the sacred, as represented by the priest, into our home in a way that was alive, right? In addition to things that my mom uh, and dad did around the environment, like we had a statue of the Blessed Mother we ha- in the front yard. In the backyard, we had a statue of St. Anthony. We were no. covered. Yeah. We were covered both ways. <laughs> and because St. Anthony has the baby Jesus with them, right? That's and right. then a rosary on the wall inside and on and on and on. But the, the presence of the priest was, it was a big deal. It was a big deal that the priest would come to the house and, uh, and visit with us. And mm-hmm. I, I just know I have such warm, it, well, and when my faith got tested, challenged, what did I do? I went and I knocked on the door of the rectory. I said, Father Joe, you got to help me out here. What's going on? Mm-hmm. And that was decisive for the whole flow of my life. And it was prepared for by the relationship we had with our priests. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's helpful from the priest's perspective. It's helpful for us too, because I think uh, you know, a, 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 a well-formed man, Catholic Christian man, you know, part of that masculine identity is the yearning for fatherhood, to be a father. And so um, if I were to just treat my priesthood as a job, and um, in the downtime I just, you know, go back to the rectory or whatever and just do what I do, I think I'd be subtracting from my life in that very deliberate and sad way the the deeper um, the deeper uh, enrichment, I guess, of, of lived fatherhood. You know, so it's not just parishioners that come to the church and pray and then they go home, but but uh, more and more, you know, I can see them. These are the spiritual children God has entrusted to my care, and I would hope that a good father of a family would take an interest in the lives of his wife and children and not just, you know, show up for dinners and, and then go to work to, you know, to earn the paycheck to, you know, to fund the family's goings on, but would actually insert himself into the lives of his children and just be a father to them. And so, um, so it's life-giving for me to, to do it that way as well, and uh, through the lens of fatherhood, especially. Well, I like what you just said. You said two things. One, believe it or not, I've never heard it said. Okay, so that's, that's really striking. Okay, <laughs> I've been around the church a long time. And when you put a particular emphasis or centrality on the idea that you are Father Lewis. I call you Father Lewis. You're our spiritual father. You're the father of the parish at St. Mary here in Spokane Valley. And 
a good father will want to be involved in the lives of his children. Uh, and there's a way in which I've put the focus of my attention on the liturgical role of being Christ, another Christ. And yet, and, and as, as essential and central as that is, if you step into the meaning of being father, then it extends beyond that in a very natural way. Um, and it's what you just said was, was so, so striking to me was, you know, I and other priests have a choice. The choice is when we're done with that priestly ministerial liturgical role, we could just as easily go back and live our own lives versus, no, I'm going to step out and engage in a fatherly capacity. Mm-hmm. That's really powerful. Yeah. Now, did was that something that was taught to you in the seminary? That, or was it like where did you pick that up? That idea that okay, I've finished my liturgical obligations, and, and that's not how you were thinking about it. But you, you're done mm-hmm. with the let's at the parish building centric ministry. Where did that come from? That sense of I, if I'm going to be a man who has a God-given inclination, a tendency to to be father, how am I going to let that show up as a priest when I don't have a family back at the rectory? Right, yeah. It wasn't something that was explicitly taught in seminary, but I, I guess I observed it and picked it up on the good example of priests who have been in my life just growing up. Um, I guess one particular uh, vivid memory that comes to mind is uh, our current rector of our of our of our cathedral parish, uh, Father Darren Connell. When he was newly ordained, he was assigned as the parochial vicar, the so the associate priest at my home parish, and that's where I first met him. And um, he was tasked with doing the altar server training each fall. But rather than just like kind of take us through the training and and then send us home with our parents, you know, he wanted to make kind of a bigger event of it. And so, you know, he had a bunch of pizza brought in to feed us lunch and then we played softball and he was like the, um, the all purpose pitcher so that none of the kids had to worry about pitching. And, um, now he was only with us for like a year and a half or two years. And so I only remember that happening once or twice because it was only an annual thing, but nonetheless, it reminds a, it remains a vivid memory for me. And, and here was a priest who, who, uh, who inserted himself in the lives in this case, of these of these altar servers, these boys, to um, and then just to play with them, you know, in that capacity, and so that and similar examples of like, you know, he's not just doing his job and going home, but but you know, this is a part of his job too, quote unquote. But he, he it's like it's clearly life giving for him. He loved it. He loved doing that. You just basically told me that Father Connell's very old. That's what you just <laughs> so just Father Connell, it just, just Father Lewis, just kind of putting it right out there. Uh, <laughs> but you know. You think about it, he was probably in his mid-20s at the mm-hmm, time, mm-hmm. and here he is exercising a type of fathering, mm-hmm. fatherhood, in the lives of these young men that are probably just half his age. And that that's really interesting. And uh, I, I know one of the things that guys would talk about in the seminary was, or priests, the faculty would say, now, the, the day you're ordained, you're going to have people three times your age coming up and calling you father, mm-hmm. uh, that people that could be your grandparents, mm-hmm. and maybe even your grandparents are now calling you father. Uh, do you remember that? Oh, what, yes. What, what that was like? I do. It, 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 it wasn't as weird for me uh, uh, at, you know, in, in general as maybe for other guys, but it, like you said, you know, maybe even family members do that, and my grandmother does 
does do that. It's uh, it's kind of weird. Like, oh, Father Jeff. I'm like, Grandma, you've known me since before I was born. <laughs> you know, you can call me just Jeff. And uh, she, <laughs> she's pretty funny that she way. She can't. There's something inside of her that just. <gasps> yeah. And sometimes my dad sees me and he'll he'll call me Father and I'll call him Father and <laughs> and Mom laughs. <laughs> now, I know that priests have a a, a particular uh, affinity towards how they're addressed. Do you prefer? Father Jeff or Father Lewis, and which one and why? I don't really have a, a preference uh, as far as the first name or last name. Father Jeff um, it kind of uh, invites a, a level of familiarity that Father Last, you know, Father Lewis, Father Last Name uh, doesn't quite as much. And so, if some people, and then some people might take it a step further and just call me the first name, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to get in their grill about it, you know. Um, you know, I had one guy in my first parish as parish assignment as pastor. Um, he would he would call me Reverend uh, every now and again, or Padre, and um, just whatever mood struck him. But but um, and I've 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 called myself in the mix of uh, in the midst of uh, high school kids. You know, Papa Jay. I said that's my rapper handle. So <laughs> <laughs> kind of help help to relate to the kids. But uh, I don't really have a preference. I think I but I am I'm purposeful. Like with uh, some of the kids at our school, for example, I. I said, well, you call your teacher Mr. or Mrs. last name, and maybe for, for their formation and the continuity of how to address your elders, I said, how about I'll go by Father Lewis at the, at the, with the school kids? You know, so it's really more for them, in, in my view. I like that. Uh, well, I grew up in Boston. You would never, ever call a priest by his first name. It was always Father Riley. Yeah. Now, if, hey, Father Joe, <laughs> yeah, that would not happen. That <laughs> never happened. That would never happen. So... I don't. I don't think I've ever called you Father Jeff. Um, I don't think so either. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's not nothing inside of me. It's just um, like I don't consciously say to myself, "I'm going to only refer to him." It's just what was built up in me. So yeah. I think that that's one of the things that, uh, for some people, it's just how they were brought up. Mm-hmm. It's what they were accustomed to and what fits for them. Yeah. Um, I've had priests say to me, you know, call me first name. Like without father, and I've said to them, I I'm gonna I prefer to call you father last name. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Which is it? That was back in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and it was it was just uh, I'm like father, you're my spiritual father, and I if you're if you're okay with it, I would prefer to call you father so and so. I I think for some for some I I went father first name just to be. Like to meet them halfway, yeah, kind yeah. of thing, um, but I think they were trying to like close the gap, or somehow feel like that it was it made it easier to communicate if they didn't use the title father. Sure, yeah, and and maybe that's a thing in in Seattle where where that I don't know for the time, but I know for me it was something that I, it just is so central the Eucharist and, and the role of the priest it, that. Father is, is fitting. Yeah. So this is Dr. Curran. Uh, <laughs> listen to Sound Insight. We'll be back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Hey, this is Dr. Tom Curran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in the state of Washington and in Idaho. I've had the privilege and pleasure of helping dozens of families in the last two and a half years discern and find a a strategy, a path, and a plan to help their families find a whole new life in eastern Washington and northern Idaho. If I could be of service to you in that, I would love to. Please reach out 
drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Okay, back to Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. I'm with Father, I'm with Jeff. I said Father. You did. And then there's a little gap. And then I said Jeff. I'm with Father Jeff Lewis, uh, the pastor of St. Mary's in Spokane Valley. Father Lewis, you have some... Uh, there's some architectural changes happening in your parish. Yeah, yeah. What's that like? I know that people that will come into a parish and they'll see, oh, something's changing here. What's what's a what's a process like for a parish to go through, especially something like up, uh, updating or or um, renovating a sanctuary? Yeah. So, so first of all, tell the folks that are listening, what's the renovation that's happening, and then I'd like to get an understanding of why and how. Okay. So what's happening at St. Mary is um, uh, we're, we're doing a lot of, um, it's largely cosmetic in our sanctuary space. Um, you know, we have an altar in the ambo, the tabernacle is there, but off to the side, and then uh, prominently placed right behind the altar is uh, some kind of image of, of the risen Jesus. Uh, we don't have a, a crucifix. Jesus however. on fire. Yeah, it looks like Jesus on fire. Some, some of the parishioners cloak, we call him the Phoenix Jesus, and and um, it's it, he's known by many names, but um, in any event, um, you know. So what we're doing is is we're reno- we're renovating that. I'm I'm creating a, a grand arch that will frame the sanctuary. At the end of each will be um, a minor arch, kind of niche for um, for the home, as it were, of two statues: the Sacred Heart Jesus and the Sacred Heart of Mary. The tabernacle will be moved to the center, and then the priest chairs will be moved from the center to one side. And then there'll be a new um, a new altar and a new ambo um, of marble. The current ones are made of high sand, uh, high sand composition concrete, so it's very porous and and snags the vestments and flakes all over the ground, and it's just no good. So, um, but we're repurposing that to create a, a Saint Joseph shrine inside the church that will be a shrine dedicated for families. And so here's the patron of the family, of the Holy Family, St. Joseph. So we're finding ways to repurpose some of these things. How the whole process be- began... And I, just to say, yeah. so first of all, it's, uh, that's not easy. Because, right. you know, people are... This is their baby. Yeah. Right? This is what they've grown up with and have known. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, and yet, at the same time, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, well, you know, so my home parish here in Spokane, North Spokane, is called St. Thomas More, and it's gone under a couple of um, sanctuary renovations um, through the years. And I don't know, I guess for me, and that's my that's my home parish, you know, I was, I was a kid when that church was built, but I never, like, you know, well, if the, if the priest, you know, you know uh, liturgical uh, decor, the taste for it changes or whatever, or whatever, the, you know, I just kind of just went with it and... And didn't have a lot of buy-in personally, so it, it just—I uh, guess I never had that perspective, like you know, to be so bought into one particular look, like so I'd be frozen in time forever. And um, well, in any event, you know, I'm, I try to handle handle it all with uh, sensitivity and so on. Uh, but frankly, where it all came from was um, uh, the day I arrived <laughs> as the new pastor, my first weekend there. I, I have an altar cross made of olive wood that was a gift to me from the Christian families in Bethlehem when I was there on pilgrimage. And they gave it to me and they said, please remember us at the altar when you celebrate the Mass, because they are in terrible straits, uh, socially and politically and otherwise. And uh, so I, I used that as an altar cross and I put it on the altar. 
And my first weekend up there, a parishioner comes up to me and says to me kind of on the sly, like clandestinely, like, don't let the people hear this, but thank you, Father, there's finally a crucifix in the sanctuary. And I I thought, wow, um, this means a lot to people. And and then the conversation got, you know, started. People were telling me that they wanted a crucifix in there for years, and and these are some of the ideas that past priests have had, and and um, so I was actually planning to introduce the the idea and begin the discussion of what this ought to look like, but then COVID hit, and uh, so I delayed things for a year because I didn't want to just do it and um, actually and, like, probably the best the time to do it, right? Like, well, potentially. No, I'm teasing. I'm yeah, teasing. I know. <laughs> Except well, you, you know, for you. No, this is what it looked like. You don't <laughs> just don't remember. You just don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad I didn't do that because you know I tell people I say the renditions of the the renovation. Um, uh, images that they see, the renditions in this in our church space, you know, n- none of my ideas are in the final version. None of them. So if we went with what I did, as Bishop Daly called it, looks like you know religious stores fire sale. <laughs> There's things everywhere, and there wasn't much harmony. And and so you know, it really, I'm glad I was consulting with various people on on how this all can look have a harmonized look. And um, so there was a lot of conversation with the parishioners themselves, and 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 buying in with a lot of the gifts and talents uh, that the people have, and and um, and then as soon as I produced the rendering and put it up, I mean, people are coming up and saying, "We love this. How can we contribute?" So I'm like, "It's doing the fundraising for me," and I didn't have to ask for a dime. Um, so anyway, that's that's kind of the short version of of this, you know, year long process of planning and discussion and and now producing. Now, will the the UFO above the altar fall in the midst of the <laughs> renovation. Well, uh, there, Sorry, that was that a... was that was kind of snarky. <laughs> Carrie, Carrie has called me out on some of my humor. It's a little bit sarcastic, and I I don't think of it as sarcasm. I, I just think of it as being cleverly humorous. And she's like, "Yeah, but it's negative." Oh. And, and I'm like, "Oh, you're right. Okay, I need to repent." And it's a sin I'm working on, Father. So actually, I'm not working on sinning. I'm working on overcoming the there sin. There we go. Yeah. It's uh, you know so what. What you're referring to is, you know, the the kind of the the modern version of a baldacchino without this. What's a baldacchino, pose. Father? I, most people are thinking I've never heard of a baldacchino. Yeah, baldacchino is um, it's like a canopy over over the main altar of a church, and maybe the most famous one. If you see pictures of the main altar in St. Peter's Basilica, there's a massive four uh, black marble pillars surrounding it, holding up a large. Uh, canopy above the altar, and I'm not sure what the Italian means. Maybe you do, but uh, but that's what it is. And I think the idea is that it's it's drawing the eye down to where the sacrifice is happening, and um, and maybe it represents the the cloud descending upon you know the sacrifice or the fire from the Old Testament. I mean, there's probably a lot of symbolism. Ours doesn't have the posts; it's suspended from above, so it's maybe still has that symbolism, but it has a functionality. It it houses our speakers and our and lights for the sanctuary. And, so um, speaking yeah. of which, the the Baldacchino at St. Peter's Basilica. So one of the things that happened when we were there is we got a tour of St. Peter's mm-hmm. and got to understand a lot of the different pieces, works of art that were there and the different sarcophagi, sarcophagi mm-hmm. the different uh, uh, burial um, monuments of the different popes. Well, did you ever look at, did you ever, were you ever told about what was on the four pillars of the Baldacchino around the altar? Yeah, um... Was it the the bees? There's, of the bees, but yeah. there's also um, a, a woman. Okay. 
uh, oh, so the faces of the woman going into labor. Yeah, yeah. Isn't and that... then, and then at one of the pillars, her face is calmer again. She just gave birth, I think. The last one is the baby. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, if you follow yeah, around the four corners, uh, the four different pillars, you see these images of this woman who's smiling and happy, and then all of a sudden she's looking more distressed, more distressed, more distressed, and then in agony, and then there's a little baby. Yeah. yeah. And so it was sort of the journey towards giving birth. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, anything like that coming? Uh, any kind no, of secret, no. <laughs> secret symbolic art going to appear? Uh, no, no, not not in this first phase. But um, you know, it's another so thing. It's about, a first phase. Well, yeah, it, it it may lead to further things. You know, as as we were talking about the sanctuary, a lot of parishioners were looking back in our church. It's kind of a half moon construction, and along the backs, there's two kind of recessed alcoves of additional seating. That behind them are four square clear windows, and several parishioners have said we ought to make those stained glass. And Bishop Daly um, said, you know, there's a modern kind of stained glass or kind of chunk glass that you fit into a pattern that that show what the whole thing is. So not like stained glass at a cathedral, um, but uh, they're kind of piece of a puzzle, almost like a glass mosaic kind of a thing. And um, so anyway, that might be, you know, phase two, see what it would take to, to do something like that and talk about what those eight, they would be eight images, what they would be. Um, in any event, um, yeah, so, you know, f- f- yeah, there might be a second phase, might be a third phase, so we'll, we'll, we'll just kind of see uh, what folks like. <laughs> so without, um, the, the, this isn't meant like as a political statement, but more as a, um, what's the reason why a parish would renovate the inside of a church? Like, the, are, are there spiritual goals? Mm-hmm. Are there, is there a certain, like, the meaning of architecture is more than just hiding cute symbols like a right. woman giving birth. Right. There's something more, and you started referencing one, the idea yeah. of the, the cloud representing the presence of God coming down on yeah. an altar. Um, I'm sure that some folks are not aware of the reason why or the reason that architecture, church architecture, is drawn into the very act of expressing and facilitating worship. Yeah. There's, there's kind of a principle that one of our older priests have taught me, and it's actually a marketing principle, and, and, and it goes, the medium is the message. And, um, and part of the reason for the renovation is that as I was looking into what the church requests of parish churches and chapels to look like, a crucifix must be there and must be prominently positioned for public veneration throughout the worship space. This is actually in a church, doc, in a Vatican document. And it actually, and then regarding the altar, it says the altar must be made of stone, you know, hyphenated, specifically, you know, like drawing the eye to this inset, indeed of natural stone. And then there's some provisions and permissions allowed for a nice wood, if if that's the uh, if that's the desire or the custom. But concrete is not a natural stone; it's an artificial stone. It's a, it's like a glue of little rocks and things. And um, so, by natural stone, something like you know granite is common in our area, perhaps, or marble is very common, of course. And so, um, and um, the reason why is, be- I, I suspect, a spiritual reason why is that the altar of the sacrifice for the uh, for the Jews needed to be of, of natural, uncut stones, twelve of them to represent the twelve tribes of Israel. So the idea that that earth, that is the uh, the creation of God, is participating in this in the sacrifice and the rocks and the materials that God directly has provided. I suspect that's part of the reason for the call for natural stone. But the medium is the message, and so it's always struck me as odd that 
in newer churches or renovated churches post-Vatican II that if the tabernacle was in the middle, then it was removed to the side or completely different room. And so the joke is, well, Jesus was bad, so we put him in the corner. You know, things like that. And you That's know, terrible. I know, but I mean, it's, it is terrible. And then, and I'm like, so we're, we're going to try to make this into more of a we church, I guess, where we're all in this, which is true, and make it less about the priests. That's why the priests now face the people, whatever. But where did we put the priests when we removed Jesus from the middle? We put him right in the smack dab in the middle, like he's a king on a throne. That's always struck me as so odd, and and that's the message that that medium is conveying. Well, no wonder that then we have the 70s and 80s as kind of a rise of a very secular clericalism going on, where the priests are kind of like kings on thrones and live accordingly. But you know, it ought to be Jesus who is the focal point of our worship, because he is our God and our Lord. And so we put the crucifix prominently placed, and ours will have the tabernacle right there at the, at the base of the cross. We see that this Jesus that we see an image on the cross is the Jesus who is truly and really and substantially present here in the Eucharist. And there's your message, and everyone is focused on that and not on the priest, who the priest, as I'm reminded sometimes, the priest comes and goes. Well, yeah, so why do we put him in the middle like he's going li- to live there forever, you know? So anyway, that's part of the reason for the, the, the changes is to get back at to what is this about? This has got to be about Jesus and the sacrifice of the cross. And, um, and when, until we can like, see that, then the message is lost in the confused medium that we have in place currently. Well, and let's talk about one of the let's, potential losses. It's not a requirement, but a potential loss when the presence of Christ as Eucharist and the crucifixion, right, the act of our redemption, uh, are somehow off to the side or less clearly manifest, that the sacredness of the liturgical action, like this is a sacred liturgy rather than a holy meal, mm-hmm. right? A sacred liturgy, with obviously it's not one or the other, but where there's prominence, um, that there's a potential for a loss of reverence. Mm-hmm. In other words, the proper or corresponding attitude of one who enters into a space where sacred worship is occurring, where a, a, a holy sacrifice is occurring, it, there's a corresponding appropriateness yeah. that is called forth from the, from the um, assembly, and that appropriate attitude is called reverence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so here we are now we've stumbled into being casual versus being reverent. And is there a loss there? I think, you know, it's, I think there is, there's, there's a, there's a tension between, well, the church is, you know, is us, the assembly and, and, and part of the assembly is just seeing our fellow Catholics here at the, ga- here at the gathered at the church. And so, you know, some kind of, kind of just, um, a relaxed uh, approach, I guess, as we're coming and going, is is appropriate in some measure. But in the worship space proper, you know, the reverence that this is where Jesus is, this is where the sacrifice happens. And so I like that our church, for example, we have, and it's literally called the gathering space. You know, it's the vestibule. It's the first entry point where you come in the out exterior doors, and now we've got this broad space. And there, I'm like, okay, this is called the gathering space. This is where we can have conversations and talk with people before and after Mass. But once we step through the inner doors into the sanction, into the, um, the the nave, the, the 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 main body of the church, let us leave the conversations outside and let's focus our conversations now in prayer, our conversation with God. So there's where we can have the balance between the kind of the social gathering and then the reverence. 
and uh, and that is where I think our medium uh, uh, conveys a good message that we have kind of this, this this two-tiered entryway into the church. And not every church has that, especially smaller country parishes. Like as soon as you come in, boom, you're there. And it's a little harder to, to separate that dynamic. But, um, but our church has that, and a lot of churches do. Well, and when I think about what's at stake in it, for my kids, um, I, I want my kids to not feel just like calling you Jeff mm-hmm. rather than Father Lewis there's something about, you know, one of the sins against reverence is, uh, or piety, one of the sins against piety is not reverencing, not honoring holy persons, right. you know, priests and religious. So, well, we're up against a break. When we come back, I want to pick up on that theme and continue on. Uh, today I'm with Father Jeff Lewis, and this is Tom Curran, you're listening to Sound Insight, and we will be back. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. So, Father, we were talking about... We've kind of stumbled into a, a variety of things today. Uh-huh. This, this, I, this is all very deeply planned, Father. Oh, absolutely. You, you know this. You know <laughs> that this is... Uh, but um, we're talking about reverence and how um, there are such losses mm-hmm. when reverence is lost. It'd be just a big, big theme in the 80s was the sacred versus the secular mm-hmm. and how... And, and I think, I think we were naive, and we were um, didn't realize the entailments or implications of um, a watering down, a dissipation between those two. Mm-hmm. I, I think there was such a desire to say we are in the world that we lost sight of the fact we're not of the world, and so there was such an emphasis on being relevant. Right, don't lose your identity, but be relevant. Yeah. And as a result of that, there was a tragic loss of reverence in the pursuit of relevance, even right. in the liturgy. Yeah. So, relevant music, relevant styles of music, relevant actions happening at uh, in churches, and mm-hmm. part of that showed up, I think, um, in in architecture and in liturgical styles. Mm-hmm. So. Um, we came from a church that we were we were members of for I don't know 15 years on the west side, and the style was an attempt to take a monastic structure of the choir and bring it into the main body of the church. Okay. So the the main body of the church was two big swaths of pews facing each other. Okay, and in between them was an open space where you had the ambo and the uh, the altar at, at two ends. Uh-huh. So I basically spent most of the mass looking up. I had to look up because if I wasn't looking up, I would be looking at the people on the other side of the of the of the church. Yeah, and it was so distracting to me. Mm-hmm. So at least when we had life team masses and all the kids came down into that space. Always dressed reverent. No, sorry, no. <laughs> that wasn't the case. It was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Life teen masses. The music was good uh, in terms of like fostering a sense of participation. But it was like I'm looking at a bunch of kids who a, a, a meaningful percentage were not dressed modestly, and you know, and here you go. So it's just like, oh, what do we do? Mm-hmm. What do we do? So God bless us. The the loss of reverence had big impacts, even in the name of striving to be relevant. Yeah. You know, and that, that's, that's the, that's the, like you've pointed out, this came up in our seminary too, at least among the conversation with the guys is, you know, 
being striving to be relevant, I think just the church in our humility, we need to realize if we measure time in centuries, then in terms of trying to keep up with being relevant in the wider culture, we're always going to be behind. We're always going to be at least a generation behind, you know, <clears throat> because tastes change and, and fashions change so, so quickly. And by the time the higher ups of the church or whomever realize that things have changed, you know, the world has moved on. And so, you know, I'm of the mindset, like, just don't even try. You know, I don't think that people come into the church expecting it to be just just another aspect of the world. If they do, they're they're in the wrong place. You know, I don't ex- I don't go to Morton Steakhouse expecting to order a cheeseburger because it's not McDonald's. You know, <clears throat> just 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 realize what you're stepping into, and then the place where you're stepping into, just just own who you are and be true to yourself, <clears throat> which is um which is a common message in our second world too, by the way. But in any event, the church could do that. You know, let's just stay true to who we are. You know, people come here probably looking for answers, at least looking for a place to step out of the world for a while and and, and looking for deeper purpose. So why are we trying to mask that with relevance at the sacrifice of reverence uh, and, and some, you know, contrived sp- uh, attitude of trying to make people feel welcome? I think that people will feel welcome when they feel uh, safe and secure when they feel something real that's there. And we have the most real thing of all, which is Jesus in the Eucharist, which is God present truly in our presence. And um, and so let's just celebrate that and emphasize that. And and people will make the choice. Jesus said, I come not to bring peace, but the sword. So if people come into the church and Jesus is there and they said, this is not for me, okay, you know, it's not anything that the church did. It's what Jesus did or did not do. And the people responded. But you know, anyway, I'm of the mindset like just stay. Let's just stay true to our who, who we are, and let's not can keep trying to keep up with what's relevant in the world. Well, it's uh, the the joke that you would you would uh, you hear often is father uh, not father like it would often be youth ministers trying too hard to fit in to be cool, uh-huh. and it's not working, man. No, nope. you, you're not you're not getting there. Yeah, and it, occasionally my teenage kids have said to me through the years, Dad, Dad. Stop trying to be the cool dad. <laughs> First of all, you don't do a very good job of it, right? And secondly, it's not having the positive impact you think it's having. Yeah. But be the father. You know, mm-hmm. be a father who can uh, have a bit of decorum, um, maintain that sense of uh, respect that is due to me. And you know what? Kids will respect you more. You'll have greater influence over them. And, and that's really what you want. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. I, you know that that's been my attitude with youth ministry for forever. Is like I'm never, I'm, I I was never really one of the the cool kids. First of all, so trying to pretend is just going to be an epic fail. And <laughs> and I remember from my youth, like someone trying too hard was instantly like, okay, I'm writing that guy off because he's trying too hard. He's and it's not it's artificial. And so I made the decision very early on that in my engagement with youth, as I'm getting on to college years and beyond, is I'm just gonna. Be who I am, and and that's just it. And so when the kids start talking their lingo, or whatever, or, or fussing with their technology, you know, not only am I not going to try to pretend like I know what I'm doing and keep up with them, but I'll actually savagely mock them for their bad English and grammar if they start using <laughs> slang and and uh, and make fun of the technology. And and you know, I tell people, I said I browbeat the kids mercilessly, and they keep coming back for more. I don't understand it, but I think what what they are really. Um, what what really helps me to link with the with the youth is is just the the raw natural naturalness of 
of who I am, I guess, and relating with them. And they, they, I, I think that with me, they know they're getting the real deal. It may be the grumpy old man version of myself as I'm complaining about technology, but at least we know where we stand with each other. Yeah. A, a word that I like is authentic. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. Uh, the, and the word in uh, Latin for authentic means authoritative. Oh, wow. Isn't okay. that cool? Yeah. That uh, the, authentic, uh, the authentic teaching of the church means the authoritative teaching. And so uh, I, I, my sense is that when someone is authentic, it's when they're going to have the mo- greatest influence. They're going to have the greatest sense of authority, mm-hmm. that greatest weightiness to uh, their personality in terms of who they are and the impact they'll have. So uh, coming back around to the, uh, the sacred space, mm-hmm. right? the, the church having this renovation, um, one of the things that seems to be happening is a recovery of reverence, that um, we can update, update in a sense of recover some of the things that maybe were experiments coming out of the Second Vatican Council that didn't have as much positive impact as maybe we thought, not realizing the downstream effects of them. So I see some of that happening. In fact, did we talk about this last week, about um, what they're doing at the cathedral with the kneeler? I've, I've, I, 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 we didn't, but I do know what they're doing. Yeah. So I, yeah. why don't you share that? So there are enough people, I guess, that at the cathedral and, and lots of places, actually, a lot of parishes, that folks come forward uh, to kneel to receive Holy Communion. And, um, and I guess at the cathedral, Father Connell observed this and, and observed also that you know, some of the older folks that are doing this, you know, kind of grunting and sighing, trying to push themselves back up. So it's a very practical maneuver in some respect to, to give them something to help them stand back up. But, uh, but it's a response to the growing uh, sense of rever- reverence and piety on the part of the people as they come forward to receive our Lord in the Eucharist. And, um, and I, I've, I, I see that a lot at uh, St. Mary as well, that I would guess, first of all, more and more people are receiving on the tongue than on the hand. And I've, I've noticed people who previously, when I got to St. Mary, were receiving in the hand, now receive on the tongue. And, um, and it's, I've, I haven't really said anything about it. And then a lot of other people are starting to uh, genuflect before they receive or even kneel while they receive. And some women that come to, to Mass, uh, when I first got there, were not wearing the mantilla, which is that veil. But now they are. And I've said nothing about any of this, but there's just kind of a, a cultural shift toward greater reverence and piety in the context of the liturgy that, that, is, that seems to be just sweeping over the folks. And... Um, and um, and it's not just St. Mary, but at the cathedral, they got the kneelers now as part of a, the communion line that can branch off to kneel at the kneelers to receive. And, um, and I, I think it's a, a growing trend that isn't really being called for or mandated, but people are responding to some prompting from the Spirit. Yeah, the census fidelium, right? Uh-huh. The mm-hmm. Vox populi, vox dei, the yeah. voice of the people, the voice of God. Um, yeah, yeah I, I do really like that. I, it's interesting because um, I, I would come and kneel but I don't want to draw attention to myself. So I have this kind of interior battle when I come forward to receive Holy Communion where I want to be appropriately reverent. I want to be appropriately receptive of the Lord. But I don't. when I stop and I have to think about, oh, is someone going to look at me? Then it jars me away from the, the proper spirit or disposition. So it's a little bit of a battle. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. All right. up in, uh, Back in a minute with more Sun and Sun.
Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Karen. It's great to be with you today. I'm with Father Jeff Lewis, the pastor of St. Mary in Spokane Valley, and sharing about some of the changes happening on the inside of, of your church, the um, the updating and the renovation happening there. So we're talking about um, reverence and receiving Holy Communion. And again, this is one of those, it's sort of the um, sacramental principle. By that, I don't mean the sacraments, but what I mean is the outward expression is something that's intimately connected to the interior spirit. Yeah, And so it's not as if you cannot receive communion reverently in the hand. Right. So it, that's not what we're saying at all. And we're not saying somehow you're more reverent, for sure, if you kneel down, you might as well prostrate yourself then and right. then turn over, right? And re- <laughs> yeah. uh, Come on, you can... So it's not as if there is for sure... If you kneel and receive on the tongue, you are being more reverent. Um, so that's on the one hand, mm-hmm. right? There, there's no guaranteed um, in, uh, communion or interior, uh, I used a bad word there, a guaranteed uh, connection between what's happening in the heart and what's manifesting itself outwardly. At the same time, there is the principle of fittingness mm-hmm. or correspondence. There is a more appropriate way of expressing an interior sense of um, what's happening in the heart mm-hmm. with the exterior expression. Mm-hmm. So uh, here's a cute story. John Luke, uh, we had uh, the priest at, uh, the pre- there was a priest uh, who was the brother of uh, a member of uh, a parish we were at, uh, came in and uh, came into the basketball court to, to say hi and, and all of this. And I said, I bring my boys over, I go acknowledge the priest. So I bring my boys over, John Mark and John Luke, and John Mark says, hi, Father, uh-huh. and shakes his hand, and John Luke says, what's up? <laughs> and I'm Classic. like, John Luke, what are you doing? I said, I apologize, Father. We're not that bad. We're not that bad. So there is, now John Luke could have been very, you know, interiorly, you know, thinking that he was appropriately honoring Father, but he would not. That is not a good correspondence between the interior and the exterior, unless you tell me that you were, I was wrong there. Uh, no, no, I I still see that today. So, <laughs> so, like that is not right. But I just I made that big point about the intimate connection between the interior and the exterior. Is that too? Am I making too big of a deal out of that idea of coming forward and receiving communion in a certain way? No, I um, I don't think so. In fact, what I was thinking also is that. If the if the interior, what I'm feeling as I'm coming forward to receive Holy Communion, is uh, yearning to be expressed in a reverent gesture, but my gestures aren't keeping up. Like you said, you feel like you want to kneel to receive, but then suddenly your mind thinks about, well, am I going to be observed? So the outward doesn't reflect doesn't reflect the interior. And sometimes, but some, I think on the other hand, um, there's something to be said for kind of faking it till you make it, where I want to want to be reverent in my heart. And I don't know how to do that unless I adopted the postures first. Mm-hmm. So maybe maybe I was um, a little too casual myself now in my youth, receiving Holy Communion because I was receiving on the hand, but in seminary, observing other guys receiving on the tongue. Well, I'm not sure what they got that I don't, but I see the outward expression that they are doing that I'm not. And I want to grow somehow in my, in my reverence. And basically, I want to be more like them. I will start receiving on the tongue. And so the the outward ex, uh, gesture preceded the growth of the interior reverence, and I th- I think that's legitimate as well. So um, if you if you want to 
grow in some, it, I wanted to grow in reverence and piety under my approach to communion. I didn't know how to do that sparked from the inside. So I, I began with the exterior and let that permeate inward. I like that. Action follows being mm-hmm. and being follows action. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's, that's a great uh, axiom in, in, in Catholic <laughs> theology, Father. So, but let's, let's get to the point then. Yeah. The point is, um, why would receiving on the tongue be considered, uh, let's say, objectively or in an outward way, more reverent than receiving on the hand? Well, um, I think for, for me, from my perspective, it's just a, a lot more, uh, I guess it's a lot more practical in terms of the reverence. You know, this is Jesus and the host. Any tiny fraction of the host that could flake off also is the fullness of Jesus. And the more that the host touches the palm and then touches the finger and then touches the mouth, that's three movements, three surfaces of your body that are touching the host, and therefore more fractions or, or flakes of the host that could be whoever. Whereas if you receive directly on the tongue, now it's just one, it's one from the priest to you. And then spiritually, I mean, I tell people, I say, if you want to receive, receive on the hand to give them an image to help them be more reverent, imagine that your hands are now the crib of the baby Jesus. And um, if you're receiving on the tongue, you know, you are as just a completely help. You are now the baby. You're the baby in the crib. You are completely helpless. You need to be fed by, by our loving Father who gives us as our food his son. And so uh, it's a gesture of helplessness uh, before the presence of God. Um, but, uh, anyway, so I just, it's the, it's the frequency of motion, um, and the many, and the, and the increasing numbers of times that the host has touched that, that I do have a preference that people receive on the tongue for those practical concerns. So interesting. Uh, it's the, the, the practical concerns, and then there's the more profound sort of spiritual to the heart, uh, things. Uh, I, I remember, uh, so there's, the the older practice of having a communion rail, mm-hmm. and I didn't know the theology of the communion rail, um, and it was related to the concept of the sanctuary. Okay, right. So the idea is that the priest has now come down from the altar, stays in the sanctuary, and the altar rail is the 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 border between heaven and earth, mm-hmm. and it's the priest who comes across the border. Christ is coming from heaven to earth. And so you're there to meet him at the border, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that the, the the hands that were ordained, set apart for this holy action, are the proper ones to distribute Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I heard that, it had such an impression on me. Because, um, you know, at St. Joan, you have the communion rail, and the only way to receive is kneeling and receiving on the tongue from the hands of a priest. So that's sort of the next step. And you saw, like, we play sort of liturgical gymnastics uh, <laughs> when it's St. Mary, where it's like, okay, where's Father going to distribute Holy Communion today, <laughs> right? And I do have a systematic rotation, by the way. But do you really? Yeah, do. you got to tell us, because we kind of, you see that we shift around a bit. Yeah. So last week, okay, we're going to be over here, and then Father's over there. I'm like, well, that, that wasn't very helpful. <laughs> And then my kids, like most of my kids are like, well, we're just going to go right here because we don't want to appear out, like we don't want to be so visible when we come tromping across the back of the church to go receive communion from you. So is that something too? The idea of receiving communion from the priest, not just receiving on the tongue. Yeah. I I see other people do that. And, um, you know, the... 
the, the church has allowed extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, and so the idea is that, you know, these are people that have been commissioned by the parish and, and allowed by the church to do this. And, and um, so, I mean, um, but I, you know, people who want to go specifically to receive from the priest, like, like I, I get that too. So I, I haven't really made a, a fuss about that or anything. Um, and, um, but I, and I've not spoken to it cause, you know, some people just go to the line that they are. And this is part of the reason why I try to move in a systematic way from Sunday to Sunday, so at least at least once a month, this set because people will sit in the same spot, you know, from here to the end of the world, and so you know, rather than looking like I'm playing favorites with this group of people over here, I try to rotate around. Um, but any oh, event, that makes uh, sense. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I do. And where I got that was um, one of our priests when he was newly ordained. He was sent to uh, uh, Walla Walla, which is down in the southern part of our diocese, and one of the parishes there was uh, founded as an Italian parish, and he always. And in fact, there was a great divide in this parish. I don't know if there still is, but those whose families hark from from southern Italy were on this side of the church, and all the windows were southern Italian saints, and all over here the northern Italian saints. I love it. You, I mean know. The, you mean the real Italians? <laughs> yeah. okay, so, so watch it. The southern Italians are listening. Yeah. But um, anyway, um, the pre this priest would would always just out of his habit go to the same spot to to distribute Holy Communion. And this went on for a couple months, and finally someone complained that he seems to favor the Southern Italians, or whatever side it was. Wow. So when he heard that, he never thought of that, but then he made it a point to shift around. And so I learned that, and I said, I'm going to make it a point to shift around if there's multiple people. But, but you know, anyway, I, people wanting to receive from the priest line, I, I recognize that there's... Um, they have a heightened sense of... Or the of, deacon. I'll also oh, go yeah, to yeah, the, one of the clergy, yeah. deacon's ordained. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Now, to, uh, you know, I had to have a heightened sense of wanting to, uh, to receive, as you say, from these hands, from this person who was uh, ordained and therefore in a particular, in a sacramental way, commissioned by the church for other things, but for this purpose as well. And um, anyway, I can appreciate that perspective, yeah. So it's, uh, it it's feels like the church continues to like roll forward in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And, and so things that were present in a certain decade, we kind of talk about decades, it, it does feel like there's a return to reverence, a recovery of reverence in the liturgy. And that that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. That, I think that's a good thing. I think that'll foster, honestly, a greater sense of reverence for the priesthood. Mm-hmm. And so fewer young people coming up to you and say, sup. <laughs> I think that's just parenting. It's a parenting issue. I might call them out on that and browbeat them a little yeah, bit. <laughs> that's good. That's Father Jeff Lewis. This is Tom Kern listening to Sound Insight. Tomorrow, please join me. Uh, one of the things you'll notice in weeks to come is um, regular interviews with authors of books. I'm very excited about that, so stay tuned. Um, we've got several authors that'll be on about once a week coming up on Sound Insight. All right. Thank you so much for listening. God bless your day, and join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight.